If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Uh, I am in conversation now for The Bigger Picture with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. The first time I've interviewed anybody who's actually sitting in a car with a seatbelt on as we're doing it. So we shall have to see how this goes, Tim, but the, the wonders of, um, of technology. So what are we going to begin with today? Well, I think we've got to really talk about energy um, and all the changes that are going on in the world because one of the consequences of the dreadful conflict uh, in Ukraine is of course we're seeing politicians being forced Mm. to make truly unexpected and momentous decisions and decisions that are going to affect all of us for many years um, almost in every aspect of our life and you know we all, you know, require electricity. Uh, many people are still reliant on the different heating, you know, on gas and oil. It plays a big part. If you think that the motor car, motor transport, still underpins or represents about 20% of any given uh, modern economy through roads, mm. uh, steel, you know, uh, petrochemicals, uh, electric components, you know, the motor vehicle is huge. Um, and, as well as heating and, and lighting and all the rest of it. So energy, you know, is almost some of the core underlying institutional architecture that, 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 that underlies us all. And who could have imagined when only a few months ago we were in the run-up to COP26 and Greta Thunberg was headline news and Sir David Attenborough was broadcasting, you know, not least from the garden of Buckingham Palace with Her Majesty the Queen, and stressing the importance of the green mm. agenda and of the horrors of climate change, that we are where we are now. Because it seems to me that the European Union is hurtling towards a desire to taper out over the course of the years ahead, in the, the 2030s, a lot of their historic reliance for gas and oil on Russia. Uh, In Britain, there is now a live conversation about reopening uh, North Sea oil and and gas uh, uh, um, plant that has been closed for some time, partly because it's been uneconomic and doesn't conform with the green agenda. Um, There's now talk uh, about uh, fracking, because apparently uh, there was a lot of um, uh, naughty money uh, uh, and, and some Russian money uh, floating around campaigning against fracking. But the point being that uh, politicians everywhere across Europe and the democracies are looking for more self-sufficiency and they're looking to buy time uh, so that they can usher in new forms of energy sources, things like wind, solar, uh, even tidal 
you know, mini nuclear power stations, all, mm. all the slightly cleaner stuff. But in, in so doing, can you believe, Simon, that there's sort of this, this consensus growing um, around oil, gas, and even coal, and that, and that countries like Germany uh, seem to be at the cutting edge of this completely new, and I have to say, out of the blue conversation. Yes, I mean, clearly that the, all these countries still want to move towards a greener future. I mean, had we, I suppose, had we done it many years ago, we'd be in less of a pickle now. But at the same time, of course, the belief that we could move more quickly than science actually was able to produce, of course, is core one of the reasons why we're in such a, a problematic situation now. I mean, when things we were only days away from the two fracking exploratory wells being concreted over, which would have meant they were gone forever. Um, of course, we've lost that massive storage facility under the North um, Sea for natural gas, which I believe they're looking at opening again. Um, but the oil companies have been demonised for such a long time that they've, they've given up on trying to explore new uh, sources of oil and gas under the North Sea. They just feel it wasn't, wasn't worth their while. Not, they no longer look only at the economic viability of something, but at the, um, the bad press they're going to get for simply trying to explore fossil fuel. Absolutely. And um, uh, I mean, over and above that, the other thing that, that, that strikes me as being utterly unforeseen and utterly extraordinary is when you have the US State Department, who are not only, you know, reaching out to various countries around the world, I know the British are talking to Saudi Arabia and UAE and UAE uh, has said um, that it will uh, supply, for example, larger volumes of oil. But when you have the US State Department that, that are then actively engaged in reaching out to Venezuela and forming mm. a kind of partnership, uh, uh, because of course Venezuela is one of the world's uh, uh, countries with the greatest potential for oil exports, um, then you know that the tectonic plates of history are really starting to shift. And um, Venezuela in recent years has been a huge and close ally of Russia. Uh, if, if Venezuela is prized away and goes back into the US camp, goodness gracious me, you know, who yes. saw that coming? Um, I think it's, another... it's not that long, is it, since, since you were talking about Venezuela on this very programme and about how it was virtually now beyond the pale as far as the West was concerned. Well, exactly, exactly. And then... Um, yes, to 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 you know one of the things I think that's that 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 that, that is coming through um, the, the shifting sands at the moment is that Britain, of course, is more advanced um, than most countries and certainly most of Europe when it comes to diversity of energy supply. We already have a lot of energy that is generated uh, from wind. Uh, the solar sector is growing. Um, there is a new generation of nuclear reactors, and it seems more coming on behind uh, places like Hinkley. Um, you know, I think Hinkley Point is already uh, the largest construction site in Europe, um, and that will come on stream later this decade. But Britain's um, quest, it's it being at the forefront of energy diversity, I think underlines the point that it is much better placed than most countries in Europe. Uh, from a security point of view, there are those like Hungary, like Slovakia and others who are uh, very, very, very reliant, particularly in gas, um, for their supplies from Russia. But I, I think that what we're going to see is this ongoing and swift tilt away. I think we're going to see far greater diversity 
um, in future right across the continent. I think we're going to see some new geostrategic alliances formed. I mentioned Venezuela and um, I think uh, that Russia is going to have uh, a gravely diminished economy because of this over the short, medium and potentially long term. They were hugely reliant on their hydrocarbons. Uh, I think the marginalization uh, that they're suffering and likely to go on suffering um, will be profound. But but boy, the saying used to be, you know, a week is a long time in politics. Well, this has been one of the most extraordinary two weeks um, and will have enormous ramifications in energy, I think, for many years and many decades ahead. Tim, thank you very much. Time for us to change topics, I think. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, now, obviously, the reason that uh, everybody has been trying to reassess um, where they're going to get their energy from is because of the uh, invasion of Ukraine. I think that's where we're going to turn next, Tim, isn't it? We're, we're we recording are. this, what, three weeks on from the invasion, I think. We are, but we're actually going to, we're not going to talk you know, about the military goings on or or, or even um, dwell on the humanitarian issues that this invasion has raised, because that's well covered uh, right across our media and there are far greater experts in those areas than me. Mm. For me, what, what I'm really intrigued by is the world of unintended consequences. If we go back to the 1920s and 30s, right across Europe, and in fact, in many parts of the world, it was hugely fashionable back then to believe in central planning, you know, top-down government control, particularly in the strategic sectors, like uh, car production, construction, energy, healthcare. And the line all those years ago was that government was supremely well-placed to stamp out messy and duplicating and ultimately irrational duplication. You know, often in markets, you might have competitors. They all have different separate duplicating marketing budgets. Um, and if you're running a railway, you might have different private railway companies. But what you need is one national, rational approach. That was the old argument. But then by the 70s and 80s, as uh, more questions were raised around the notion of top-down central planning, so um, the concept of unintended consequences started to become fashionable. Became fashionable in social science courses and in economics courses, and particularly in our business schools. So, in very recent years, over the last twenty years, unintended consequences is something. It's a concept that, that that we've all spent a lot of time dwelling on and teaching. You know, all humans face the problem of knowledge 
they all face huge epistemological challenges. When you say something, when you do something, what will the second and third order effects be? And often you cannot know. You know, you, you, you throw uh, an ideational hand grenade and it splinters and shards and goes off in all kinds of directions, achieving things that you could not have foreseen. That's part of the human condition. So unintended consequences are really important. We teach them and we try and pe make people really mindful of them. But again, my goodness, whatever is coming from this invasion by Russia of Ukraine, I have never in my life seen such unexpected and extreme unintended consequences. Whatever Vladimir Putin thought he was doing, whatever he had intended, whatever his goals were, whatever he was trying to effect, it seems to me, and I'm no expert in this, but it seems to me from a business school point of view, he has almost single-handedly led to the rearmament of Germany, he is encouraging and incentivizing Sweden and Finland to possibly join NATO, uh, to possibly dramatically increase NATO budgets moving ahead. Um, uh, we have already seen the ending of hundreds of years of Swiss financial neutrality. Mm. I mean, Switzerland did more in one day than perhaps it did or achieved over several years during the Second World War. Um, Russia is being economically, politically, culturally, and legally isolated. There is massive long-term reputational damage. Um, when students, when young people study the GCSEs, the A-levels, when they study history, for example, modern history, and they study the First and Second World War, they don't ironically dwell on, for example, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. And that tells you that often it's the more recent things that are avidly studied and that build reputations. Mm. And I think the ultimate unintended consequence could be that one of the things that Putin is affecting is not only Russia's reputation today, but it's almost ex post facto reputation uh, in the last war. Um, it is almost um, uh, undermining the reputation of the great patriotic war and the 20 odd million people died, the 70,000 villages that were raised to the ground because of the Nazi invasion. And I think that's so tragic as an unintended consequence for all those ordinary Russians who suffered in that war. I don't know the extent to which ultimately this will embolden China and, and, and the unintended consequences uh, that China will benefit mm. from, or maybe not. I don't know the type of wedge this could put between Putin, his elite, and huge sections of Russian society. I don't know um, how marginalized truth is becoming or will become in Russia, but this is probably the most significant seminal lesson from a business school point of view in unintended consequences in my lifetime. What do you think was Putin's original aim. He believed, presumably, that he'd be able to roll over Ukraine in just a few days. I don't know. Um, I'm not a Russia expert. Um, it seems to me uh, there are many different strains of thought that during COVID, he became isolated. 
uh, and that he was very fearful of um, COVID. And there are those who stray into the mental health consequences of isolation and mm. ask profound questions. There are others who say that he has become more religious, more mythological, uh, more embroiled in certain tributaries of the Russian Orthodox tradition, and that uh, he has fused together in his own mind a belief in the early Rus coming from Kiev and unity of the Orthodox Church and the idea that if democracy and circulating elites and liberalism um, and Western brands and uh, almost the material and conditional liberation of ordinary Russian people were to percolate too stridently in Russia, then somehow this will be the end of yeah. Russia, that our relativism and nihilism will destroy the dream. I don't know. I have no idea. I find his actions uh, in some ways almost unfathomable. But what I will say is that an awful lot of people in history who do audacious things, a lot of tyrants, um, they've often read a lot of things. They often have a lot of ideas in their head. They have their visions. They have their reasons. Um, they're often very divorced from humanity and from what it is to be a human living a life with the human condition. But it seems to me that he is unleashing forces um, that are unintended, that he did not expect. And I, for one, as a very humble man, as a dad, as an academic, as a husband, as a colleague, as a friend, I do not know where this is taking him, his country, or any of us. Mm. All right, Tim, let's uh, change topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Um, our final topic, please, Tim. Yeah, so really interesting ideas. I remember some months ago, Simon, um, when COVID was absolutely raging and we were going through the first and second wave, we wondered, didn't we, whether innovation and change that had come as a reaction to COVID, whether the innovation and change and new forms of practice would uh, not only develop, but they would be honed and they would then become embedded in areas like our healthcare system. Well, there's now a plan afoot for the NHS to treat 25,000 hospital patients at home in what are called virtual wards. It seems that not only can many of us increasingly work from home, um, but that the technology is there um, so that people with certain conditions and at certain stages of care and treatment can be looked after in their own home. They can still be monitored by technology and clinicians, um, but um, these are described as virtual wards. And of course, the objective here is to help clear the backlog and to free up um, beds uh, in NHS facilities where people really um, need um, the sort of care that can only be provided in a hospital environment. So one of the issues that comes from this is maybe we're seeing as an innovation, a new tier, a new type of care. Of course, there are many forms of care. You can have long stay, you can have short stay, you can have intermediate, you can have acute, you can have various forms of chronic condition where you're key to 
uh, treated at home or variously in and out of different institutions. But the idea that um, you can have clinicians monitoring and caring for people um, in um, virtual wards remotely um, and that these wards can have certain uh, economies of scale and scope, I find to be absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, forgive me for having a, a degree of scepticism here. I always find the NHS is great at coping with new technology. I mean, I think my own personal experience during um, the early stages of the pandemic, when I couldn't get to see my own doctor for a dermatological problem, and I had to ring 111, who rang back at three in the morning, but I couldn't show him anything because 111 doesn't appear to accept an email from a prospective patient and they had no vi video facilities. So trying to get any help for that was incredibly difficult. The idea that I, you know, I could be a potential hospital patient being treated somehow at home through technology. Do you think the NHS is possibly going to be able to cope with this at all? Well, there are already 53 virtual wards that are already up and running uh, in a pilot scheme providing care to more than two and a half thousand. So, so what sort of people, what sort of conditions? Well, they're the sort of uh, people um, who uh, maybe have family, they have friends, they have support, you know, they mm. uh, can uh, have their own home, uh, their own food, uh, their hygiene needs can be tended to, but they need maybe uh, uh, a drip put in, uh, maybe a mm. health uh, every now and then they need to be monitored certain medication interventions can be made etc the point is not everyone uh, uh, has to either be in a physical ward mm. or indeed has to be at home unmonitored and unsupported the argument is that there are lots and lots of people um, thousands of people at any point in time who um, don't have to be in hospital that do need a degree of clinical monitoring and input. Um, and that is what this pilot is designed to do. To me, I have to say, it makes sense. Um, I think that just as the technology had obviously reached a critical point whereby huge swathes of people could work at home and, and, and achieve things that perhaps before COVID in their work lives, they were not certain they could achieve. I think a lot of employers have learned just how effective a lot of people can be working from home. And if anything, it's not an issue of people slinking off or, or being lazy, quite the reverse. If, if you, you know, can get out of bed and you don't have to travel for 30 minutes an hour, but you just wash, have breakfast and mm. you're on the PC um, and you're working, one of the big challenges is people working actually productively and working ridiculously long hours so one of the things i think that came from covid and it's well documented is is how do employers um make sure that people don't just work and they work hard but they don't work too long and that's a fascinating world so i think we're probably going to discover in healthcare that in certain settings where people do need that regular monitoring and support not everybody has to be in an acute ward or in HDU in high dependency or in ICU. People can be monitored effectively and efficiently at home where they have the right input and support. We talked in the last section about unintended consequences. Um, there are, however, not necessarily only advantages in people working at home. I mean, many companies are now finding out that not having people actually interacting with others in the office can actually reduce productivity, reduce innovation, particularly because people aren't able to bounce off each other in the same way. Do you not worry that there will be unintended consequences in this and that, that, that possibly more serious things may, may 
go by the board because there isn't actually somebody there physically checking on people. So I think that's a really important point. I think you're absolutely right. Um, my point is that you're never going to have the sort of technological change um, that we've been witnessing and that we're going through, not only without unintended consequences, but also without discovery. And when you're navigating those tributaries, you know, what is good, what is bad, what's unexpected, you are on a huge journey. Let me reverse your point. I don't believe for a second that everything that's going to come from all these developments is going to be wholly bad. I think there are going to be lessons, there are going to be new ways of working, some of which work, work well, and stick. And your point is well made. Maybe in certain creative industries and in certain creative teams, you need that physicality, you need to be together. But there are lots of other types of work where, for example, you need deep thinking, deep learning, and deep reflection, and solace uh, may also play a role. And maybe there are lots and lots of people out there who part of their week, they need to be, to be very creative in an office with the team, sparking ideas, lots of the water cooler conversations and all that. And then other parts of the week, they also need the solitude, the reflection and the deep thinking. But that cannot be planned and we will not always be able to predict yes. the consequences. So we're on a huge journey of discovery. And for me, that conjures up two words. New, it's why we have in the English language the word new. And secondly, I confess, and this is my bias, I find that quite exciting. The idea that we can do new things, that there could be such a thing as a virtual ward in the NHS or in private medicine or wherever, mm. that, that phrase, virtual ward, that gives me a aha uh -huh moment that's interesting and even if we get it wrong what can we learn and what can we put right so i'm all in favor of it let's experiment let's try some new stuff Jim, thank you very much indeed i've been in conversation with professor tim evans who is professor of business and political economy at middlesex university in london tim will be back chatting to me again in a fortnight's time the bigger picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.